All right, let's pray. Father, please help us today to understand your word with faith and with humility and to see how it applies to us and to uh, be strengthened, Lord, in our faith. Help us in Jesus' name, amen. Well, so this is, according to my paper here, the fifth week of studying God's covenants. Had a week off, of course, last week uh, for Christmas, but this is the fifth lesson. And uh, we've seen so far that God relates to his creatures by covenant. And that runs all through scripture and ties it all together. It's a way of reading, it's a way of looking at the Bible, right? There's a, there are different systems, and I talked about that at the beginning of the class. There are different lenses that you can look at the Bible through, and those lenses tell you literally how to read what you're reading, how to understand what you're reading, how to see what you're reading. And the, the most <clears throat> prevalent modern lens is dispensationalism um, that I've talked about. Put that over there. Um, the one, the lens that I believe is a more biblical lens comes out of the Bible itself is what we're studying. It's covenant theology. So God works through his, God works through, throughout history in his dealings with mankind, actually all of creation, and actually, as we'll see in a couple weeks, within the Trinity itself, within the God, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, he's working his normal way of relating is by covenant. And so we've looked at what I've called the universal covenant, God's covenant with all of creation, just because it's creation. We've looked at, for the last couple of weeks, at the early chapters of Genesis and God's covenant with Adam in the Garden of Eden. And remember that different theologians will call this different things, and it's confusing. Um, some will call this the covenant of creation. God's covenant with Adam, they call it the covenant of creation. Much more commonly is the covenant of works, but that's a little bit confusing and we'll talk about why later. Um, Some will call it the covenant of life. Some will call it both of those, depending on what you're reading, and that's even more confusing. Or you can just say the Adamic covenant, which is just another way of saying God's covenant with Adam, all right? So for now, <laughs> that's what I'm gonna call it, God's covenant with Adam. You can, you can pull all these different kinds of labels because it's kind of looking at it from a different angle, but that's what we're talking about. And God made a covenant with Adam. And when we, <clears throat> whatever we call that covenant, we can think about God's covenant with Adam according to two aspects, and we talked about this last week. The general aspects and the focal aspect. The general aspects are the broader duties of man to his creator. That's what we talked about last week. You know what I'm saying, two weeks ago. The focal aspect is the specific duty of Adam himself in his peculiar role, I could say, as the representative or head of this covenant. All right? So there's the the kind of the broad, general aspects and then the focal aspect. So what are the general aspects? This is what we talked about last time. Fruitful marriage, faithful labor, and restful Sabbath. 
<clears throat> What's the other term for those things? There's a term that theologians use that we use to describe those three aspects of this covenant with Adam. Creation, close. Creation ordinances, all right? <clears throat> you could call it the creation mandate. What I, the term I used was the creation uh, ordinances. So these are things that are ordained by God, right? That are wrapped into the creation before the fall and you can't pull them out without like having the whole thing fall to bits. We're trying real hard. And of course, a culture will fall to bits if you pull these things out. Look around, okay? Fruitful marriage, faithful labor, restful Sabbath. He built them into the creation. They're embedded into the structure of creation itself. And as long as this world exists in its current form, right? These duties and ordinances are binding on all men and women everywhere. That doesn't mean every man or woman has to get married and have children. I mean, that's, but generally, these, these duties are binding on mankind. And they are certainly not removed in the new covenant, right? They are not removed because of the work of Christ. And we'll talk about that when we get to the work of Christ, the new covenant. Now, <clears throat> The other thing is they're certainly not the result of sin. These existed in the creation before Adam fell into sin, right? These are the things, these are some of the things that God declared to be very good. Before sin came in, these existed and they set the whole shape of creation and mankind's place in creation from, from the beginning. When everyone and everything in the physical realm is living in harmony with God, these things are here. And that brings up an issue I should have explained more fully last time. We have seen uh, that God made Adam to do what? Work, but his work is a function of what? Hmm? Rule. God made Adam to rule in this physical realm. <clears throat> you remember in, um, in Colossians where it talks about Jesus being the creator of everything. You remember this passage? It says, all things in heaven and on earth. Then what does he say? Visible and invisible whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, might have gotten some of those wrong. He, everything was made through him and for him, all right? So you see in that, in that passage and many others like it, there are two realms that God made, the, the heavenly realm and the earthly realm, right? The visible and the invisible. And of course, Scripture deals mainly with the visible, because that's where we live, but tells us a lot about the invisible. Christ created, created both of them, 
and there are creatures populating both of them, and there are um, those who are given tasks to do in both of them. Adam is made the ruler of the physical realm, the visible. But we've seen a few weeks ago, there are, other, there are also other creatures made by God to have work to be done in the invisible realm. And those are going to come up again. God made Adam to rule in the physical realm. So God delegated authority to Adam. <clears throat> right? He rules not because of some intrinsic authority, but because God gave him authority. He commanded him to rule. You all with me? And then he made Eve and gave Eve to Adam, and Eve shares in that task of rule as a helper to Adam. And that means she has her own work of dominion to do. But she does it under the headship of Adam. All right? This authority, this headship, is one of the things built into this. It's assumed. I mean, you could assume it, but we shouldn't assume it. We, because this is one of these things that is at the center of the nature of reality that God has made. And it is man, that Adam, man, and still today mankind, has authority. And man, male, has authority. God gave Adam authority over Eve before the fall. All right? He gave authority to Adam. And part of that authority is over Eve. And he gave that authority to him before the fall. The fall does not introduce this. The fall corrupts it. Okay? And we know this <clears throat> in at least two ways and probably many more. But first of all, the order of creation. The order of creation. In other words, what happened first? What happened second, right? And this is the argument um, that the Apostle Paul uses when he goes all the way, when he's talking about uh, women and men in church and m women not being allowed to teach or have authority over men, where does he go to support that claim? Back to creation, before the fall, right? So here's what he says, I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet for, here's the reason, it was Adam who was first created and then Eve. So the order, Adam first, then Eve, is not an accident, right? It is built into creation and it has implications for what? Authority. So because Adam was made first and then Eve. Eve is not to exercise authority over Adam. Okay? It's built into the nature of reality. Here's another one. 1 Corinthians 11. <clears throat> For a man ought not to have his head covered. This is speaking in worship. For a man ought not to have his head covered since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. So God made Adam, and then Eve is derivative from Adam, right? For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. So the order has all kinds of significance, right? 
terms of purpose, in terms of authority, in terms of relationship. Therefore, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. We'll actually talk about that in a few weeks, oddly enough. All right? So the order of creation, God gives authority over Eve before the fall, built into the creation, simply by who got created first, and then who was derivative. Adam first, then Eve. And then secondly, you see this uh, built-in authority of Adam over Eve before the fall in the fact that Adam named woman. I talked about that a week or two ago, in passing, really. So Genesis 2.22, the Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man. So there's the order of creation, right? Adam first, then Eve. Not Adam for Eve, but Eve for Adam. And he brought her to the man, and the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. If you remember from Genesis 2, that is right after God did this, right after he gave Adam the task of what? Do you remember? Naming all the animals. That was the, the first act, you could say, recorded of Adam's rule. He brought the animals to Adam and he named them. That is a, a function of authority. That's why I remember last week, or yeah, whatever that was, last week, when we looked at the passage in, in the sermon about Zacharias and naming John, remember all of that? That's just wrapped into the, the way things are, okay? And so Adam names Eve. She shall be called woman. And that is in itself uh, an act of authority. Okay, you all with me? Now, these general aspects of God's covenant with Adam are positive commands, right? You go back to that list. There we are. These are positive commands. These are things that Adam and Eve must do positively, right? Things that they must do. They're part of the covenant, but they're positive commands. Adam would not have fulfilled the duties of this covenant if he decided not to be fruitful and multiply. If he decided not to work. If he decided not to rule, right? If he decided not to keep the Sabbath and rest that one day out of seven. These mundane, everyday kind of duties were part of this covenant. And if you think about it, this kind of covers everything, you know? I mean, everything that we do, one way or another, fits in that framework. This is talking about just all of life. So God's covenant with Adam covered all of life. Um, It wasn't as if, oh, you've got all these things that you do over here. You've got your marriage and kids. If you want them or not, you know, it's up to you. Who cares? Have a dog. I don't know. You can work if you want. Sabbath, oh, well, you know, whatever. I mean, you know, these, these aren't little optional things. These are the commands of God that cover literally every aspect of life. You, Adam could not have been faithful to God and just blown all that off, you, right? You can see the implications for us. 
And these things are not like secular. Right? Secular is a term we use these days to kind of think about things that aren't religious. And a lot of Christians will say that most of life actually is not religious. It's secular, you know. As soon as we're done today, the rest of your life essentially is secular. That's what people say. Christians, reformed Christians. It's wrong. All of life is under the authority and, and command of God. All right? So it's not like secular, and there's one thing that's sacred. No, it's all sacred. But there's a second aspect to this covenant, the focal aspect of God's covenant with Adam. The focal aspect is the specific duty of Adam himself in his particular and special role as a representative, as the representative or head of this covenant. It applies to Adam specifically in his unique role as the covenant head of the whole human race. It is a duty that we cannot perform. It applied specifically to him, Adam, the first man, right? What is that, that particular duty that God lays on Adam? It's a negative, isn't it? So this is Genesis 2, 16 and 17. The Lord God commanded the man saying, from any tree of the garden you may freely eat, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. This is one of the reasons we know this is a covenant. As I've said, you know, before, I think last time, there are the marks of a covenant here, and one of the marks of the covenant are duties. So, you know, God comes, sovereignly administers. He's not bargaining with Adam. What, what do you want to do? What do you think, Adam? No. He imposes it on him. And there are duties, both positive and negative. And there's a threat of death if you fail. So that's the blood, Remember? A covenant is a bond in blood, sovereignly administered. And so here's where the blood comes. The day that you eat of this, you will surely die. So that's the stipulation. That's the focal aspect of this covenant. So Adam is to live a fully integrated life of righteousness under the good and holy rule of God. He's to live as a real physical man in this real physical world. He is to love and lead and provide for his wife, He is to make fruitful love to her and raise up children. He is to faithfully work with the stuff that God has made. God made it in such a way that it can be worked with, right? Things can be done with it. He is to faithfully work and fulfill God's calling in the physical realm. He is to enjoy the blessings that God has freely and generously given, and he's supposed to receive it with gratitude as good, and he's supposed to enjoy it. And he is to set aside one day in seven to rest and to worship. And he is to do all of that under the mighty hand of God. God is the creator. He's the king. He's the Lord who deserves all of Adam's worship and gratitude and obedience. And the one negative stipulation of this covenant with Adam is, from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. 
for in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. That's it. So what's the deal with this tree of knowledge and good and evil? What's the deal with that? Is this a fairy tale? No. We know from Genesis 2 <clears throat> that there were two special trees in the Garden of Eden. All right? Out of the ground, the Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food. The tree of life also is in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So there are two trees that are different somehow from the other trees, okay? But only one of these trees is forbidden to Adam and the other is not. What he says, remember, from any tree of the garden you may eat freely, and that includes which tree? The tree of life. Now let's think about these two trees. Because we are modern men and women, <clears throat> we tend to think that there was nothing special about these two trees. I mean, they, there can't be anything special about these two trees. That's fairy tale stuff. You know, that's fantasy land stuff. There can't be anything special about them. Um, we tend to think that these were just simply symbols, but that they had no special powers or properties in and of themselves. They're just another tree and God calls it something special. You know, it's like this. You know, it's just something, you know, it's just bread. Nothing special about it. This is how we think, right? Now, they are certainly symbols in the sense that they signify important realities. But I don't think the Bible will let us think that they are just normal trees. All right? Now, we'll see in Genesis 3, that these trees actually conveyed something to those who ate their fruit. These trees actually conveyed something. I'll show you that in a minute. We'll really see it next week. So what is the point of this negative command? Um, why? Why, am I, why did he put this tree here and why or is Adam not allowed to eat of it? What's the point of that? This one negative command seems arbitrary in a sense, okay? It seems arbitrary. Um, why that tree? Why, should I, why am I not allowed to eat that? In other words, it's a command that tests Adam's commitment to the Lord God at a fundamental level. Do not do this because I said so. Period. It's just one thing. You can eat of everything else, including the tree of life, but of this one thing you may not eat. Just don't. There was nothing intrinsically evil about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Think about this. There's nothing intrinsically evil about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Uh, these days, <clears throat> you'll hear people who hate God and despise his word talk about this as if God is opposed to knowledge in general, right? You'll hear, you'll hear people 
and they'll talk as if God commanded Adam not to eat of the tree of knowledge. Right, because God wants you ignorant. As if knowledge is somehow forbidden by God. You'll hear people talk about this all the time. Why would we have the Bible? Yeah, well. The Bible's for ignorant people. So, knowledge is not forbidden. Remember, God placed Adam in the garden to do what? To cultivate and keep it. Uh, This takes knowledge, right? He gave Adam the, the mandate, is what we call this. We call it the cultural mandate, to fill the earth be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. God gave Adam that work. He made Adam the ruler of the physical realm. He commanded him to rule over the earth. He gave Adam to help, or Eve to help Adam in that task. And God made mankind to be a knowledge seeker. To be a knowledge seeker. He built the world in such a way that it is open to our pursuit of knowledge. He made us in such a way that we can figure things out. <clears throat> One of the, right after uh, all this happens, Genesis 1, 2, 3, I think it's probably Genesis 4, you have three um, men. I can't remember their names because I didn't plan to say this. <laughs> but they're, 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 they're given, uh, they're mentioned as men who figure things out. One of them is, uh, figures out animal husbandry, right? Anyone remember his name? Come on, Janice. <laughs> She's looking. What? You know? So one of them is given, it figures out animal husbandry. This is right after the creation. This is like first generation stuff. You know, sons of Adam and Eve. And uh, contrary to the, to the modern way of thinking, they didn't struggle along, you know, eating grubs and, and berries. Animals. Huh. I can d- domesticate these animals and make them do what I want, and then I can eat them. Well, we'll get to that later. Right? So one, one is the, the father of all animal husbandry, husbanders, farmers. Another one grows vegetables. Jabel, yeah. Livestock is Jabel, and then someone else's. Is there a Tubal Cain or something like that? Yeah. Well, yeah, Cain and Abel themselves. But then there's another one who is the father of all who make musical instruments. (laughs) That Jubal? You should know that. So think about that. Whoever had the idea, I always get this when I, when I see people eating lobsters, I think, whoever had that idea? Whoever thought that would be a good idea? There's a big bug that swims in the ocean, I'm going to rip it apart and suck its meat out. Okay. Um, someone came up with the idea, Jubal, of making music. I'm going to take this stick and drill holes in it and blow on it at intervals and make music. You know, that's an oboe, right? I'm going to take metal out of the ground and melt it and shape it and blow through it. Or I'm going to take a cat 
and remove its guts and stretch them real tight and sheep, sheep intestines. You're just saying that because you like cats. Okay. God made the world for that kind of thing to happen. Does that make sense to you? He made us to interact with the world in such a way that that kind of thing would happen. He made the world to be open to man's investigations and explorations and inquiries. If you are, are, you, if you are intentionally dull and disinterested in the world as God has made, the world that God has made, shame on you. You are made not, you're made to be interested and curious. God made man to be curious and industrious and inventive as he carries out the task that God has given him. Fill the earth, subdue it, make it better. All right, what does that require? Knowledge. So no, God is not opposed to mankind having an increasing in knowledge. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil is one of those things in the garden that God said, this is very good. But, so this is the the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's a tree that gives a certain kind of knowledge. But it's not a kind of knowledge, okay, that's wrong in and of itself to possess. So it's it's not that knowledge is bad. It's also not that the knowledge of good and evil is bad. Now, why do I say that? I say that because the knowledge of good and evil is portrayed in the rest of Scripture as a good thing to have, actually. All right? Where do we see that? Consider two passages, one from the Old Testament, one from the New, about the knowledge of good and evil. This is 1 Kings 3. This is Solomon talking to God. God comes to Solomon and says, Ask me anything, I'll give it to you. Remember this? And he doesn't ask for riches. He doesn't ask for power. What does he ask for? Wisdom. Look at what he says. This is Solomon. Now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father David. Yet I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. Your servant is in the midst of your people, which you have chosen, a great people who are too many to be numbered or counted. So give your servant an understanding heart to judge your people, to discern between good and evil. For who is able to judge this great people of yours? He he feels like a child and he needs to know good and evil. Why? What is Solomon? He's king. He's a ruler. And here's one from the New Testament. <clears throat> Hebrews 5. Concerning him, this is at the end of this passage, talking about Melchizedek from the Old Testament, right? So concerning him, we have much to say, and it, it is hard to explain, <laughs> since you have become dull of hearing. So the reason it's hard to explain is not because it is hard to explain, The reason it's hard to explain is because 
his audience. What? They, they, don't, they just can't get it. You have become dull of hearing. And this is a problem. He says, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. Your little children, right? For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. It's exactly what Solomon was saying. I'm a little child. I need you to teach me to discern good and evil, to know good and evil. I'm a ruler. I need your help. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And we're going to... Exactly. That's right. And we're going to look at that next week. At, we're at, so next week... Trust me, we're going to get out of Genesis. Well, Maybe. eventually. There's a lot of stuff here. According to my schedule, we're going to be done on time. I mean, not today. I'm not going to make any promises about that. But I mean in the course. <clears throat> but we're going, to, we're going to talk about the fall and the covenant of grace next week. All right? And that's where we're going to see that. But I actually read it to you today, too. So, who is supposed to have the knowledge of good and evil? Hmm? The mature, and you could say in a focal kind of particular sense, who else? Hmm? Rulers. Solomon is a king. He needs to know good and evil. We are kings. We are a kingdom of priests, is what the New Testament calls us. A holy kingdom, a holy people. We are, we are to rule. We are God's people. All through the Old and New Testaments are to take up this cultural mandate and rule. Make judgments. To build cultures. We'll see this later, but the cultural mandate doesn't go away in the New Testament. It gets wedded to the Great Commission. All right, we'll talk about that later. And so the mature, the wise, specifically kings, those who rule. What was Adam? Adam was the king of the physical realm. God commanded him to rule and exercise dominion over the earth and everything on the earth. And God put a tree in the Garden of Eden that would somehow convey the knowledge of good and evil. Don't ask me to explain that. I don't know. But it's, it's there. It would somehow convey the knowledge of good and evil, the very things that Adam needed to rule and to carry out his task. But God said, no, not yet. Not yet. Wait. Wait until I give it to you. In other words, it's a command that tests Adam's commitment to the Lord at a fundamental level. Do not do this, not because it's apparently and obviously and intrinsically evil. You know, it's not like full of poison. 
Don't do this. Why? Because I said so. Just because I said so. This is a test. Adam, you will, you will refrain, or will you refrain, simply because I said so. Just because I said so. Not because it's obvious to you. Why? Because I said so. Will you live under my absolute authority or will you try to be autonomous? What does autonomous mean? It's a law under yourself. Adam, will you live under my rule, my law, or will you be a law under yourself? How are we gonna test that? I'm gonna take something that is good in itself and I'm gonna tell you, you may not eat of this, not because it's bad, not because knowledge is bad, not because this fruit is somehow poison. It's good, it's very good as a matter of fact. Actually, it's what you need to do your job, but not yet, don't, don't do it. So this is a probation. Have any of you ever been on probation? I've been on probation. I was arrested once. And uh, one of the things I had to do was serve probation. And during probation, there were certain things I couldn't do, right? And if I did them, uh, it would go bad for me. And during that probation, I had to um, scrape bubblegum off the bottom of uh, the chairs at the high school. That was my community service. I was 15, maybe, 16, 15. Um, probation. With probation, it's a period of testing, right? And as long as you don't do the things you're not supposed to do during that period of probation, once the period of probation is over, those restrictions are lifted. I mean, that's not quite true. I mean, you know, if I would have done, you know what I'm saying. Um, it's not that I could have done the things I did to get arrested and wouldn't have gotten arrested again. But if I would have done them while I was on probation, it would have gone bad. Uh, sometimes you get hired on a probationary status. Sometimes you're, you're, you don't do well in school and so you put, get put on what? Academic probation, right? And if you don't, but it's a limited period of time. It has an end in view. That's what this is with Adam. It's a probation period. In other words, Adam, God, I believe, the scripture, that this pans out with scripture, the rest of scripture, if Adam would have succeeded in this one negative thing and not eaten of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, what would he have gotten? the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because that's what he needed to rule. I believe he also would have been confirmed in life. Life, eternal life. Okay. Here's a quote from one of the main books that's been very helpful to me as I'm reading about this stuff. I told you about it before, it's called The Christ of the Covenants by a guy named O. Palmer Robertson. Listen to what he says. 
man was required to do many things under the provisions of the covenant. We've already seen that, all those, the, the creation ordinances. But the probationary test concerning the tree established a focal point at which man's submission to the creator would be, could be scrutinized. Now the point of testing reduces itself to man's willingness to choose, between, to choose obedience for the sake of obedience alone. The raw word of God in itself must become the basis of man's action. Not his reasoning about it, not him coming to the right to the same conclusion. Well, I can see why you wouldn't want me to eat that. It's poison and it's bad, and I can I can agree with that. Okay, I won't eat that. No, there was nothing like that. It was simply the raw word of God. Now the evidence from this passage and what the rest of Scripture indicates is that if Adam had obeyed this one negative command, God would have freely and graciously confirmed confirmed Adam and Eve in a state of perpetual righteousness and eternal life. It was a probationary command. God would have given mankind eternal life and eternal blessedness without the possibility of falling away if he had obeyed this one negative command and kept, kept God's covenant. We'll see this When we get to the new covenant, this is exactly what Jesus did. He kept it. And then he conveys the blessing of that to his people. We'll get to that. This positive promise of God's covenant with Adam is related to the tree of life in the garden. Remember the two trees? Apparently the tree of life itself was God's means of providing the power to live forever. (laughs) This is just what the Bible says. We'll see this next week when we look at the fall and the covenant of grace. But one of the consequences of Adam's rebellion against God's covenant was what? After the fall, what's one of the, one of the consequences of breaking the covenant? Do you remember? He's kicked out of the garden so that he cannot eat of the tree of life. In fact, here it is. This is a little foreshadowing. This is after the fall. Then the Lord God said, Genesis 3:22, "Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil." So as, as Don pointed out, that can't be evil in and of itself, because God says, He knows good and evil, and whoever he's talking to knows good and evil. I don't think it's himself, actually. <clears throat> He's become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So he drove the man out and at the east of the garden of Eden he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. So one element of the curse is you're not allowed to eat this anymore, which means what? You're going to die. Yeah. More on all that next week, all right? So the Lord God creates Adam to rule over the physical creation. He graciously gives him everything he needs to do this work, food, provision, a wife to help him, fellowship with God, a world to work with that's easy to work with. It's what it's made for. Hands, a body, a brain, 
designed to go together with the physical world, senses, eyes, ears, taste, touch, smell, all that stuff he gave Adam to do his work. Everything he needed. And he gives positive commands that will result in blessing for all of mankind and one negative command to test Adam's faith and obedience to God's word. Did he obey? No. Tune in next week. All right, we do have to be done. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for how it makes us, uh, helps us to make sense of who we are, what we are, where we are, what you've given us to do, what all of our problems are, the blessings you've given us, all of it. Your word makes sense of all of it. Help us to believe it. Help us not to be Adam and autonomous, a law unto ourselves. Please help us, we pray. Help us to be humble. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.